Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Digital Humanities, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Katie McDonough, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, I'll be talking to Hoyt Long. Hoyt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to have you. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I work at the University of Chicago. I've been here about a decade now, and I teach in the East Asian Languages and Civilizations Department. Um, I, yeah, and I, I came here primarily with a, my focus is, was in Japanese literature, Japanese studies, and over the past decade have, you know, through a variety of means, uh, become acquainted with computational methods and have essentially tried to marry uh, one interest with the other uh, to sort of figure out how um, sort of new developments in computational methods and digital humanities can uh, help a field uh, like my own. Great, thanks. And I think one of the real values, uh, to to use a keyword today, um, of of your new book is that it it really does kind of bridge um, Japanese literature, East Asian studies, uh, uh, and and really important questions in the digital humanities. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you for writing it. (laughs) It's going to be useful in a lot of different kinds of courses and for a lot of different kinds of research. So um, without the further ado, I think I'll dive in and ask indeed how how you came to this project. What what made this what made this sort uh, book um, come to be? Yeah, it's a long story, um, but I'll, I'll try to give you kind of the the easy account. Uh, so prior to this work, uh, my initial work in Japanese literature had been on a a relatively unknown, uh, well, an unknown author in his time, but who later became famous, a a poet and a children's author named Miyazawa Kenji. And in that work, I had been interested in really sort of questions about uh, where geography and sociology meet. So how a writer who was working from the provinces, from the hinterlands of Japan, how he 
decided to represent his place in a at a moment when most writers came from metropolitan Tokyo. And uh, one of the interesting stories about him is that he was little known uh, during his lifetime, but after his death, became a quite uh, through a, a sort of a series of um, connections became well known to local audiences and then expanded out and is now a nationally recognized figure. And at the time I thought to myself, well, how did that happen? What were, who were the networks of people that sort of made that, made him into what he is today? And so I had started to explore questions around network analysis. This led to some other projects where I was working both on my own, but with uh, collaborator Richard So on uh, projects related to sort of understanding the social, sociological relations between poets um, and their publications. And so for the first couple of years, I had was sort of dabbling in network stuff, which uh, I know you know well, uh, that field. Uh, but I came to sort of feel that really the gap there was uh, trying to link the social with the textual. And so started to make my way into text analysis First, with mostly English language texts, because you know this is a point I make in the book. the the, the tools are are pretty much designed to work with uh, the English, and so it's a, it's an easy way in uh, to working with computational methods. However, you know, as I proceeded, I thought, well, I have to I have to bring this back to my field. I want to work on Japanese language texts. And so, you know, gradually started to move in that direction, and through a number of uh, individual projects learned how to do how to use some of these methods and adapt them to Japanese language texts, and from there it then became uh, my sort of the task was to think about how to turn this into a book book project that would be one you know of interest to people in my field who study Japanese literature but may have no particular interest in digital humanities. Uh, but also a book that would be of interest to those in the digital humanities field who conversely have no knowledge of Japanese literature or or whatnot, uh, in order to try to make the case for, you know, what what we can gain by moving the field, which has long been sort of centered, at least in the North American context, centered on English and particularly, you know, like 19th, early 20th century texts, what happens when we try to move these tools and these methods to a different language, language context, a different cultural context? How can that, in fact, expand kind of the work of DH? Um, and there's, a lot, of course, a lot of great scholars who have been doing this for languages other than English. Um, in with this book, I really just wanted to sort of move uh, the conversation towards uh, Japan and see, you know, how putting that into um, sort of putting Japanese literature and Japanese literary study into uh, this framework, this computational framework, how that could benefit both parties, right? People in my field, but also uh, people in digital humanities more broadly. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, it's actually sums up nicely some of the, some of the work that you um are doing so nicely in this book. And I think I'll just um, ask one more follow-up question, question, which is, um, I assume, you know, as you wrote this, as you wrote the chapters for the book, uh, scholarship in digital humanities has really come to have very serious conversations about 
what it means to do um, multilingual or even just non-English uh, uh, digital humanities. Yeah. Um, this this question about about tools. How how did how did that kind of change as you were writing the book? Sort of if you think about when you were first drafting the chapters and some of the things that it felt important to say. Um, uh, compared to doing the final revisions, were there any were there any real kind of pivot points where you felt that um, you could make a really important new intervention there? Yeah, that's a great question. I had you know sort of from the beginning had my eyes and ears open to that conversation uh, to the extent that that was possible, and I think you're you you are sort of highlighting the fact that, that there have been a lot of interesting developments over the last five years or so, uh, work by you know, Quinn Dombrowski at Berkeley, for example, to help expand the both the network, the types of languages that uh, are, um, that can be analyzed, but also kind of the range of disciplines or fields, I should say, of, you know, of people who are working with these tools. So I do feel like in the time since I first conceptualized it. And now there are many more uh, folks who are interested in starting to get into this work. And I, you know, as I sort of wrapped up the book, I tried to incorporate some of that into the introductions and conclusions to point to the places where I think um, that multilingual kind of perspective can feed back into digital humanities or cultural analytics writ large, or at least as it's in its current formation within the North American Academy. Um, it's interesting though, because it, I, I, one thing I would say thinking about it now is that there, there obviously there's multiple conversations going on, but if there are two for, at least for me, you know, there are two kind of center points. One is in the North American context where there are certain you know, the legacy of area studies and the relationship between English departments and uh, area studies departments. Uh, but I also, you know, in speaking with scholars in Japan, uh, where the context is very different, uh, digital humanities there still feels quite young, uh, although it's been kind of in development for at least a decade now. Uh, there, the focus has, has been on different things, uh, visual culture, for example, or creating uh, TEI uh, annotations for Buddhist, uh, the, the Buddhist canon. There hasn't been a lot of work on contemporary literature or even you know, literature of the 19th and 20th centuries. So there, there's in fact a huge gap. And so part of what I, I was trying to balance, right, just in terms of the audience was, yes, the multilingual aspect should have some kind of feedback into the conversations we're having in North America, where I would like to see, you know, as we move forward, a broadening of these methods into a diverse body of literatures and more of a comparative literature approach. Uh, but then also on the Japan side, it's, it really feels like uh, there's a lot of just sort of basic groundwork that has to be laid still to just introduce these methods and and sort of make a, a convincing argument that they're useful, that they can actually add to the work that uh, Japanese language scholars have done. I think that's a really nice segue to, um, well, I'm, I don't want to skip over the introduction just yet, but it will be a nice segue to uh, the, the work that you do in chapter one. 
um, looking at the history of how Japanese uh, scholars have, have have thought with numbers and, and literature. But but quickly, I wonder, um, because I, um, especially uh, being a French historian, I mm-hmm. so enjoyed the way that you introduced <laughs> the book, even though I'm not a 19th century right. historian. And, and I just, I found this to be really captivating and a helpful idea um, for, for, for kind of framing a lot of the challenges that we are kind of wrangling with uh, in DH at the moment in, in tackling the history of the idea of the average. Um, and mm-hmm. so I wonder if you could just um, kind of describe maybe what what that is, um, sort of give us a little summary of, of how you um, how you bring that into play in the introduction yeah. and, and why you landed on that as a useful sort of um, framework. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you uh, enjoyed the introduction. I was certainly dabbling in in um, histories that I had only, you know, only have a kind of a tangential relation to. But I, I came across this this story in a in a book about normality uh, recently from uh, some scholars in Australia, and I was fascinated by uh, the conversations that they were kind of unearthing from this these medical debates. So in that in in the introduction, I as you as you say, I, I begin with this these historical debates that were happening uh, roughly in the 1830s uh, in the French Medical Academy. Uh, and essentially it was this moment where uh, physicians uh, and medical specialists were wrestling with the rise of statistics, uh, which of course had started to um, have you know, be used in uh, a variety of fields, mostly demographics, but also in relationship to sort of, you know, state formation, uh, the collection of numbers about populations. And there were a couple of very popular ideas that had come out of those, the rise of statistics, one of them being the idea of the average uh, by Ketelet, uh, Adolf Ketelet. And this was, um, you know the story of that is is fairly old and, and well known, but what I hadn't seen is that kind of conversation at that initial moment. So how do these uh, what the conversation? The, there's a series of debates that happen where these physicians in the academy are really wrestling with okay, this idea of the average, right? That you can look at a population and measure some attribute of every individual, and that the average of that then says something about that population. This was a radical idea. And for medical specialists, it was a particularly um, abhorrent one, or at least for some, because uh, they had all, you know, their their idea of themselves as uh, medical specialists and is in fact as, you know, purveyors or uh, of the art of medicine was that every individual patient uh, deserved, you know, the, the deepest level of particularized care, personalized care. So this thought that you would somehow take an average of a group and then apply that that new knowledge to some, uh, to however you're going to, you know, deliver your care uh, was really anathema. However, there were a few in the academy who were starting, who saw some value in bringing in these statistical concepts and when I discovered some of the things that they were saying as part of this debate, it, it really struck a chord with me because it sounded so familiar <laughs> to the conversations that uh, we've been having here, at least in North America. Um, I think those 
the conversations have become a little bit less heated in, in recent years, but for a while it was really contentious and it really centered on this question of, uh, should literary scholars be using numbers? Uh, are these methods, these computational methods, really telling us anything new? Uh, why, why should we abandon uh, close reading and all of the kind of the rich sets of pr- interpretive practices that we have? Why should we abandon that for this, this, uh, these methods, which uh, are redu- can be reductionist and 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 tend to sort of uh, reduce. Uh, particular the particularities of individual texts or individuals. Uh, so basically, I use this this kind of historical debate as an entry point into current the current kind of debate around the use of numbers in literature. And the the whole idea behind it is really to to start to to try to destabilize or shake loose some of the. Uh, the biases or the assumptions that we bring to that conversation, whether as humanists or statisticians, whichever discipline we come from. And what I wanted to say was that, you know, numbers are always political. Uh, so are words. And uh, the more that we can kind of reflect back on the his- this historical processes that have allowed numbers to gain um kind of the place that they do in science and society and um, sort of knowledge construction generally, the more that we can see uh, that they are not some kind of monolith that came fully formed, but that they were, they were built through these historical processes in which many disciplines and scholars um, participated. Uh, and at this current moment, when we, we, there is such a kind of a, a push on uh, data-driven uh, scholarship and work, we should, uh, as you know, scholars outside those fields, whether we're in literary study or history, we should look to this as a uh, as a process, as a conversation that we can have a part in, rather than sort of hold up our hands and say this is not what we do. It will not be what we ever do. And, you know, when we look back at the debates in the 1830s amongst the medical professionals, they look a little bit uh, silly now, uh, given where medicine has come. And I sort of wanted to see, well, what if we imagine literature 200 years from now, right? Are we, what are the debates that we're having now? What are those going to look like? Uh, And uh, so it it was really, you know, I, I really use that anecdote as part of this kind of project to imagine the possibilities for this conversation between numbers and uh, literature, and hopefully to try to get out of some of the ruts that we've fallen into. Yeah, I think that comes out really nicely in the introduction, and and you begin to use this language, uh, for example, about, um, to, to quote you, uh, mm-hmm. to denaturalize some of the this contingent stories about literature. Um, that that we can do both with and without numbers and and um, and I think the way that you've you've structured the book you really introduce this gradually but uh, beginning with chapter one mm-hmm. uh, what's so nice um, is in in a sense this this chapter kind of functions as a as a as a literature review <laughs> as yeah, a, yeah. as his you know as um, but but it's actually serves multiple purposes and you you do a really nice job of of kind of demonstrating you know first of all that 
um, there's a kind of continuity between these 19th century scientific ideas and pursuits uh, by, um, you know, uh, scholars in, in Japan interested in literature um, and thinking about how to how to kind of grapple with, um, uh, you know, the idea of, of understanding style mm-hmm. uh, and um, and and sort of how that fits into um you know, something leading up to the work that you're going to be pursuing uh, in the later chapters. So, uh, you know, I think if if maybe to start off, uh, just to ask you about about chapter one, I, I might just um, sort of um, uh, sort of to say that one of the nice things you say at the end of the chapter uh, is that the the scholars that you um, you really um, tackle here, they're, they're creating a lot of new units of analysis, uh, mm-hmm. new facts, as, as you, as you put it. Um, and, um, but by the end, uh, there's a kind of possibility, as you say, that, that their innovations increasingly, um, might feel like solutions to problems that their literature colleagues did not have. Right. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was kind of, you know, stru- struck a chord with me as as you know, a historian. That sometimes I feel like I'm I'm creating I'm developing methods that <laughs> to <laughs> problems that other historians do not have, and and yet and yet and yet you so nicely point out how, of course, this is a kind of pathway, right? That that, yeah. that, that you're not they, these are not um, um, dead ends, uh, but in fact, really. Um, incredibly creative um, solutions to to questions at particular puts, points in time that fit into an intellectual context. So um, I was just wondering if you could talk us through a little bit, but not, of course, all of the examples mm-hmm. in the chapter, but perhaps one of the early ones um, that where we can experience um, a, a kind of late 19th, early 20th century Japanese endeavors uh, to to kind of create these units of analysis for understanding Japanese style and why that was important to them at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that the chapter really is sort of looking back to these moments when Japanese critics and, write, and writers uh, sort of were running into what feel at least on a, you know, a large structural level kind of similar moments where they're wrestling with uh, this tension between numbers and literature and thinking through, okay, well, how might a, a numerical or computational approach allow me to say something different than has been said before? Uh, and in particular, how might it allow me to wrestle with kind of the scale of information that, uh, that, that confronts me? Uh, and so I do that through a number of of scholars. Uh, probably the most prominent among, the, among these is Natsume Soseki, who is a, a well-regarded kind of canonical figure. He's uh, working in kind of the field of late 19th century physiological approaches to reading, uh, which is, you know, how does, how can we understand reading as a response of both the mind and the body and uh, mechanisms of attention, which is super interesting. And, uh, something that I love to talk about, but I, maybe I'll focus on this sort of the second figure in the genealogy, whose name is Hatano Kanji. And in part because he's less well known, but also I think he uh, is perhaps a, a better analog or at least easier. The example is easier to understand from the perspective of 
uh, stylistics, because that's uh, kind of really where he enters um, the conversation. And just to give a little bit of background, so this is uh, uh, somebody working in the 1920s and 1930s primarily, and he's at the sort of at the intersection of psychology, linguistics, and literature, and he does his studies in primarily in psychology and uh, as it relates to education, but he's also interested in language. And in the early thirties, he produces this book called um, kind of the psychology of, of style. Um, and what he's really trying to do there is build on uh, a kind of a, a legacy of, of work about style, about rhetoric and trying to, figure out, well, what if we bring to this conversation as it's taken place in Japan and elsewhere, a, a kind of um, a numerical approach? And what's interesting to me is that he begins quite simply. He just wants to know, you know, if we were to take a look at two writers, is there something about like in their style, in, the, uh, in their, uh, that we can see validate empirically in their text? Is there something in there that reflects Kind of their psychology or their uh, their sort of psychological mindset as they as they write. Um, now, there's all kinds of problematic assumptions we we have with that initial premise. But what I was interested in is how he goes about trying to use numbers to analyze uh, difference in style, right? Which is now now a very familiar kind of uh, approach and became quite dominant, uh, you know, in the post-war period. But at the time, there weren't a lot of models to work from and certainly no models for Japanese language. So what I do is I, I try to uh, sort of elaborate kind of how he comes to the problem, how he wrestles with some very basic questions that we take for granted in English language contexts, like uh, what is a word? Where do word boundaries occur? Uh, what uh, What is a sentence? How many uh, should we count the number of characters, right? The individual kind of characters in a, in a sentence, or should we count words as the basis of our measurements? Uh, and then from there, he actually uses uh, some of the basic measurements he develops, like the length of a sentence, and uses uh, adds to this concepts like the average, uh, which we've talked about, as a way to start to get, uh, to sort of scale up his observations, right? So he moves from the very, the passage level or the sentence level to the passage level, and then finally to text level, and, and then starts to imagine, well, what if we could do this for a whole corpus of an author or even uh, a larger sample of Japanese literature? And so I sort of trace that, uh, the evolution of his thinking and see that uh, as, a, as, a, as a moment which we can look back on and sort of recognize, well, this is not the same kind of <laughs> problem we might be interested today as literary scholars. But what he was doing was building kind of the, a really basic infrastructure for, for folks who would follow. And in fact, he sort of set up the models for stylistics, uh, for how to conduct stylistics for a lot of the folks who followed him in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And um was doing some of the same things, some of the, sort of making some of the same kind of innovations that we find uh, elsewhere. Uh, so I, he's part of this global moment uh, in which you know he's trying to wrestle with uh, how to scale up observations uh, and generalize about uh, stylistic um, 
attributes. And uh, even if many of those things that he's doing seem basic or like dead ends, they're not tools that we use anymore, uh, as you suggest, right? The, the whole point here was to sort of think about, well, of all that, out of all that work he's doing, there are pathways that are opened up, some of which are followed, some of which are not. And I think at every kind of juncture, even our own, we're sort of doing that. There's a lot of things that we produce that may fail uh, and may go nowhere, but other things may be picked up and only time will really tell like where, uh, where things go. Um, yeah, that's a that's an optimistic reading of of uh, yeah <laughs> what others um, might call failure. But uh, yeah, no, I I was really kind of tuned into this, and you just used the word infrastructure, and mm-hmm. in the chapter and elsewhere in the book, but. I, I, of course, first noticed it in this chapter is the way that you talk about methodological infrastructure. Uh, I was yeah. interesting. I was interested in thinking, you know, hearing you um, sort of th- talk a little bit about that choice of words um, and, you know, how that indeed relates to this idea that that these are um, perhaps now invisible uh I don't know if building blocks is the right mm-hmm. word, <laughs> but invisible, uh, invisible kind of motivations, right? That 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 spurred future scholars on um, in you know ways that would not have have happened if they had not done that work. Right. Um, but yeah, what does methodological infrastructure mean for you? Yeah, so uh, I think right infrastructure obviously brings up ideas of kind of hard infrastructure, um, you know that technologies um, that we do computation on. But with that, the idea of methodological infrastructure was really to talk about, um, and I think a lot of the influence here comes from my readings in history of science, which help elucidate how uh, the things that, you know, that we call scientific facts are really the products of a long series of deliberations and processes that have to do with both both the hardware of scientific discovery, but also the ideas that are overlaid on those and then kind of become concretized fact. Uh, And so the methodological infrastructure would be this more sort of uh, the conceptual or theoretical uh, aspects of infrastructure. And I always, I, I, I try in the book to always sort of see, you know, the hard and soft aspects as, really, they have to both be there and they're mutually reinforcing. You can't sort of think about ideas or facts uh, outside of that relationship. And so with methodological infrastructure, I'm trying to point out both the ways in which uh, new concepts or, or new ideas are attached to you know, computational tools or methods like in the case of Hatano, and thus bring new facts into being, or new, um, you know, just new new forms of analysis. Uh, and but I'm also I I don't want to sort of restrict that notion to just what happens, you know, in a kind of a in this computational domain. I also want to sort of reflect back on just the even within you know, literary studies proper, the the ways in which the discipline itself is built out of a certain set of um, methods, uh, which 
uh, as we all know, you know, in terms of, if we think about it through the lens of intellectual history are really, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a field of possible choices. Some rise to prominence and then fade. Uh, and we're always sort of faced with this set of tools, these methodolo- these methodologies that we can draw from. And I think, you know, in certain institutional contexts or temporal contexts, uh, some of those methodologies are, are favored more than others. Uh, and to some, you know, to greater degree. And here with sort of this history of how um, Japanese critics and writers have wrestled with computation, I was trying to think about, so how do their methodologies, the, the, the infrastructures they'll, they're building, how do they both uh, extend um, computation into literary studies? And what happens when those methodologies meet up with existing practices, existing methodologies, you know, in literary studies? Uh, and what does that conversation look like as, as folks kind of wrestle with uh, the, the, the always sort of ongoing dynamic, uh, which sort of privileges some methodologies over others? Uh, and that's, that's, that's really sort of what I was trying to do with that, that idea of methodological infrastructure. Thank you. Yeah, that was my my selfish um, interviewer question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so I think in the latter, uh, I'm spending a lot of time on chapter one because I'm historians and it's about it's about history. So, yeah, uh, but I just want to ask one last question about chapter one to kind of bring it up to the to the 20th century story mm. um, and, and sort of looking towards your work. Um, and, and other work today, which is, which is about this challenge that emerges between kind of, as as you 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 call it the asymmetries um, uh, that uh, exist in, in say the geography of information processing, right? Mm-hmm. So, as these even out, um, you say, should we expect quantitative methods to be warmly welcomed in Japanese literary studies? Um, and you've talked a little bit about this already, but I, I I wonder if you you have anything sort of more to say about why you wanted to bring um, why you kind of wanted to bring that um, to the surface in this chapter, and and also to say if there's anything that's happened maybe since the book has come out that um, that you might want to add to that story. Mm. Yeah, great question. I. I still think, you know, very much the asymmetries are there and this idea, you know, is really the, just the, the fact that technologies, uh, particularly in natural language processing and machine learning have long been dominated, uh, by, you know, data sets, uh, that are in English work on English languages. And so we have this kind of situation where we have, you know, languages that are heavily invested in, in terms of these technologies, and then lower resource languages that are not as heavily invested in. Uh, in the case of Jap- Jap- Japanese, um, you know, there are, I won't get on into sort of all of the historical issues at work here. Uh, it does have the benefit, you know, of there's obviously a whole like rich field of, of linguistic study in Japanese, part of what I trace in the book. Uh, and that work continues to go on, uh, but although it tends to be sort of confined to linguistics study proper, and hasn't really bled back into uh, literary studies. 
And so I think that, that those asymmetries are still there. Uh, I have seen some shift with, at least within the Japan studies circles of that sort of an, an interest in, uh, bringing, incorporating some of these new approaches into, uh, literary study. Uh, and so I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of promise there, uh, in the North American context, it's, uh, as we've talked about already, there does seem to be, you know, increasing interest in sort of multilingual, uh, DH. And I think that's going to yield some really interesting work in the coming years. I think it, it's, yeah, this question of asymmetry is, is hard because it's, it's inevitably, always going to be there uh, to the extent that English remains uh, dominant. And I think it's something that those of us who work on non-English materials are, are forever going to have to wrestle with. And in Japanese, you know, and for East Asian languages, you know, you're, you're dealing with a whole host of issues, you know, from start to finish, just in terms of uh, technologies for optical character recognition and, the fact that you have languages that uh, have gone through many more kinds of uh, historical changes in the last century than, than English. Um, and so it's really just, it's just really hard to uh, do the kind of work that, for example, um, you know, Ted Underwood or Andrew Piper have been able to do for centuries of English language texts. Uh, and I don't know when we'll get there, uh, but that's, and we can talk about this in the later part of the interview. I think, I mean, that is one of the things I see as a kind of a mission for the years ahead, which is to, you know, for myself to help build out some of these computational infrastructures to do the basic work of, or to, to replicate some of the, the innovative and, and fundamental work that's happening for English literary texts to try to move that into the Japanese context because uh, uh, yeah, to the extent those asymmetries remain, then scholarship, any scholarship that is produced in this field of you know cultural analytics, uh, is going to be, uh, I think, hampered by those uh, that lack, uh, that inability to have a comparative perspective. Yeah, and and that is, I think, points to uh, what you what you really nicely examine in chapter two, which is this issue of archive and sample. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just, you know, what are the texts that uh, most people have access to? Um, uh, and I, so I, you know, it's everyone in who works on English is of course familiar with uh, the really standard uh, collections that are used as text corpora, like, uh, like Google books, like the, um, the 18th century collections online, um, you know, and, and other data sets that are provided by Gale, uh, parliamentary data, there's, there's, there's more and more data every day, it seems mm -hmm. like. Um, but for Japanese literature, uh, as you, as you, um, as you show, this is much more limited. And, and so there's this really kind of crucial digital text collection, the Aozora Bunko. And I was wondering if you could just introduce that for people who will have never heard of it before um, and who might kind of realize some of the, the ways that you explore that collection, its biases, uh, mm -hmm. the nature of sort of how it came into being, 
how thinking about that not only, you know, sheds light on what it means to do this work in Japanese literature, but what it means to just think about collections of texts uh, in general. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to, to help explain that. The, so the, I think the easiest way to describe what Aozora Bunko is, is it's, it's essentially a kind of a Project Gutenberg um, that was created in Japan in the late 90s and arose out of this moment, this sort of initial interest in ebooks, uh, and is, is sort of an amazing story in itself. I am not able to tell the whole story in the book, but just little bits and pieces of it, because it's it's sort of this volunteer effort, uh, community, uh, you know, crowdsourced uh, effort in which uh, uh, members of this kind of collective, but also uh, just members of the public have contributed to digitizing texts, uh, and these are hand-keyed texts, so they're not OCR'd or, or scanned in OCR'd, they're all hand input, and you have what started as a collection of dozens of texts is now on the order of almost 20,000, I think, that range across a whole variety of genres, uh, both nonfiction and fiction. Fiction tends to dominate, and uh, this is the question I really wrestle with in chapter two is, okay, so for the time being, right, I, I don't have access to something like, you know, a hottie trust for Japanese literature or Google books for Japanese literature. So I'm always going to have a kind of a relatively small scale of text uh, or a, a small corpus. Uh, in this case, on the order of, you know, several thousand. And we know right off the bat, that, that's not going to be necessarily representative of, of anything that we might call uh, the population of Japanese literature. But, and this is a question that, that I think your, your question alludes to, which is many of us are faced with this same problem. How do, we, how do we basically situate the representativeness of whatever you know, digital collection we have? Uh, and what are, the, what are some kind of best practices or, or methods that we can use to go about to, to at least, uh, if we can't create that ideal collection, at least understand um, how the, the nature of the biases that are embedded in what we have. So in this, in the chapter, I describe this Aozora Bungo collection and sort of just dis describe its basic characteristics in terms of publication dates, uh, you know, what kinds of texts are in it and, uh, you know, gender of the author, that sort of thing. Uh, but then in order to sort of figure out well, what does it, what exactly, or how representative is it, how good of a sample is it, I uh, use other um, types of metadata, in this case, bibliographic data, to try to triangulate and understand, well, if this is, if Aozora is but one kind of, um, you know, a very poor representation of all that was written in early 20th century Japan, well, what other kinds of representations of that moment do we have? And how does, and then how then, you know, how, what's in Aozora, how would that compare? So I, I, I look through, for example, uh, bibliographic data about uh, collected uh collected works or anthologies. These are, this is a really kind of a rich um, area of literary production in Japan. 
Uh, and so I had I had access to data about what's been who and what's been anthologized over the last um, uh, eighty to ninety years. Uh, so that's one representation. Um, I looked at, for example, sort of who's been included in high school textbooks, right? What literary texts have been included there? Which is another, you know, another obviously biased sample, but it it gives me yet a different representation to then. Uh, try to compare what we see in, uh, you know, the history of Japanese literature through anthologies or through textbooks. How does that then compare with what's in Aozora? And essentially, uh, I, as, as I as state in that chapter, like there's never going to be a perfect, <laughs> a perfect sample. Uh, but what this process allowed me to do is, is at least to say uh, that Aozora is biased in these particular ways towards a particular time period, uh, towards a particular, you know, balance of, of male versus female authors, uh, towards a, a particular balance of genre. And so obviously any analysis I do is going to reflect some of those biases. Uh, but I also was able to sort of say, you know, every, if Every every sample we use is going to have those biases. So by comparing different types of samples and different representations of the, you know, the ideal archive, uh, is it for me was an effective way to sort of triangulate and think about what's unique about Alzora and and what kinds of questions it is good at answering, and conversely, like what questions it would shouldn't be used to answer. Yeah, I think that's a challenge that we face uh, across many, many different kinds of text collections. And and because of the nature of digitization, uh, the way that it's been financed, the, the politics mm-hmm. of digitization um, all over the world, even in even in places that um, you know have have ample text data. Uh, it's about understanding those collections um, and what questions are actually appropriate <laughs> to ask yeah. of them yeah. is a really big part of the work that that um, that I think we're only really coming into uh, right right about now, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's really yeah. exciting to see you um, to see you give examples of how to do that, and and I think this is a nice opportunity to to ask about really. Um, Sort of the relationship between the book and the code and the data that you've that you've shared um, mm-hmm. openly alongside the book. Um, I, I really appreciated in the introduction how you you know you you mentioned this as a kind of primer for getting started in, in testing some of these methods and and I'm just interested in you know how you see people interacting with the code uh, and the data that you share. Um, what is the relationship between the writing and the book and, and the code uh, as you see it? Um, yeah. Or are these, you know, are they more independent? Are they interdependent? Uh, yeah, I'll just leave it, leave it there. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's still too early to tell sort of um, how the code that I've put out there from the book is going to be taken up by scholars uh, in my field. And I, so I don't have a good sense of that, but I, I will say, you know, alongside the writing of this book, I've helped to, with some colleagues in Japan studies, have helped to organize some workshops on, you know, Japanese uh, text mining. 
And so as part of these workshops, I'm often kind of drawing on the code that I, I used for this book and some of the same data sets to help uh, illustrate, you know, examples. And so I think it's certainly through those uh, kinds of activities, uh, the work that I've done will sort of work its way out there. And we all know that, you know, the work that we do now is always built on the backs of those who've come before us. And so like I myself have, you know, utilized uh, code written by others uh, and adapted it to my own needs. And, and my hope for this book was that by putting this, the code out on GitHub is that others in my field where there really is still just very little uh, work being done, that these will provide, you know, both uh, some examples to build on uh, and kind of, uh, that those uh, who follow me will improve on the work uh, that I've done. So, I th yeah, it's, I think it's still too early to tell how the the code and the data for the book itself will be picked up. But I'm I'm hopeful through you know through things like these workshops that that will be one avenue or, or one vehicle through which um, this stuff gets passed around. And you know, I see it. Who knows, you know, you know, to what extent, how, how, how far it will carry. But I did, I, I really wanted to, you know, building off of sort of models of other scholars in this field, try to get that, the code out there as part of this, you know, what I think of as this infrastructure building. And um, yeah, so those are, those are sort of my, my thoughts on that, that question at the moment. Yeah, thanks. And I, I think that the, work that you do in the chapters that are, you know, coming up is, is really where people can, you know, really get that, re the relationship between the arguments you're making in the chapter and how you, how you kind of um, run these experiments in the code. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of, um, that kind of, I mean, transparency, shall we say, in argumentation is one of the things that, I'm really interested in in the digital humanities, uh, and I'm 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 interested in. So, if we move into the next chapter, I'm I'm first going to ask you to just talk a little bit about what is an uh, what is an I novel, and why does mm -hmm. the wh why is the question of like genre and the I novel interesting? But sort of it, the broader context of of what I wonder if you could talk about for for chapter three um, on genre is. Is this this issue of um, how you decided what to count? Uh, so the kind of quantitativeness of it, and then you know the, the the qualitative bit, which is how to interpret the results of that counting. Um, and because that's kind of all out in the open there in the code, uh, um, and and then of course your interpretation of it in the chapter. Yeah, if you could just walk us through that process. Um, with a quick introduction to yeah. the kind of i-novel genre problem. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the i-novel is is one of these, you know, it's a, it's a really kind of a dominant historical genre. And it's, uh, as I sort of try to do in the chapter, I give an overview of how it's been received in the scholarship. It's a really sticky concept uh, in part because it was sort of created retroactively uh, as a way to describe a type of writing in the early uh, 20th century uh, that was 
essentially a mix of kind of a naturalist imperative, this uh, an imperative to describe with a personal personalized focus. So instead of kind of a, a naturalist novel that might try to describe a, a social situation, uh, that nationalist perspective, nat- sorry, not nationalist, but naturalist perspective was really f- zeroed in on uh, personal experience, right? And many authors at the time felt like the only thing that which they could describe truly was themselves and their own actions. So we might think of it like in today, I think autofiction, right, is a really popular term. Uh, and it, it is a kind of a proto-autofiction in that it is obsessed with the self. And at the time um, that it started to become kind of recognized as a thing, this was in the 20s, critics sort of looked back and said, oh, what writers were doing uh, just a few years ago uh, was this thing called the I-novel, right? Uh, this, this attempt to um, write the self. And uh, this initiated a whole series of debates about, well, what exactly it is? Uh, how well does it hold together? Were these authors of I-novels really doing the same thing? Um, and this has set in motion, you know, for the last at least in Japanese literary studies, a long series of conversations, um, some which lean towards kind of a structural formalist approach. Let's find the things that uh, make, you know, the qualities that define an eye novel, or at least some set of them. Uh, and then to very much more protean approaches where uh, it's really centered on kind of reader response, that there is no thing called the eye novel. It's really all about just what readers and critics over time have made of this of this thing. Uh, so I try to split that difference and and bring to this conversation now some of the new tools uh, that we have for counting things um, and for computation. And uh, right, your question about how how I decided what to count. It was a. You know, I, at the time, and I was working with some other scholars, a uh, scholar in Chinese literature, Anatoly Detweiler, as well as a statistician, uh, Yuan Chengju, and we wrestled with a lot of different ideas about sort of how to, whether we could even like identify anything, right, uh, within these this this uh, sort of a canonical set of I novels. Could we find any uh, empirical traits or, or stylistic qualities that would by which they were held together. Now, ultimately, I think we um, became less interested in identifying something shared by all uh, writers of this uh, this genre, and instead looked for kind of you know specific tendencies that were exaggerated by authors. And, and with that shift towards thinking about tendencies, then we could look at well, amongst this group of known novel writers who exhibited these tendencies more or less than others. So it became more of a kind of a, you know, looking across the spectrum. And, and, you know, digital tools are really great for this kind of thinking. And we decided to look for, um, ultimately, you know, to look for characteristics of style that would reflect uh, perhaps this intense kind of internal focus on the self and on uh, personal psychology, 
Uh, a lot of these novels will describe kind of the author's descent into um, various states of, of psychosis or neurosis. And so we started hunting around in the literature for uh, measurements that might pick up on these things and ultimately landed on a set of um, measurements uh, that try to capture the amount of redundancy or repetition in a passage. And so we take those, we, we establish a couple of these um, measurements, things like measuring lexical diversity or capturing uh, certain types of words that appear, words related to cognition or thought, and combine these into a model and then use that model to think about, okay, you know, amongst known writers of this genre, who exhibits these tendencies to a, a greater or lesser degree? And then that's where the interpretive task came in. So once we had found, once we'd figured out what to count and then kind of looked at how those features are distributed across the, the set of authors that we looked at, uh, then it came down to, okay, well, in those of those authors who do exaggerate these tendencies to a great extreme, uh, what do they share? What are they doing? And um, that's where sort of the interpretive uh, task kicked in. I'm happy to go into more of that, but um, yeah, hopefully that gives you a sense of. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think to kind of push that just a little bit further, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm interested in your thinking around, you know, you asked the question of, of um, what is good enough, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is the model Con convincing and and it's a really nice segue. Maybe I'll just kind of bring in uh, the, the the next chapter here as well. Where uh, so chapter four is on yep. um, what uh, titled influence and judgment, and you're exploring um, stream of consciousness as a yeah a writing in in two different languages and in, in English and Japanese, and trying to understand literary influence in that transnational context. Um, and you you come up with this sort of uh, concept of algorithmic competence, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you, you to, to, to kind of explore stream of consciousness at scale um, uh, and and the, the results of these models uh, provide a, a kind of algorithmic competence that allow you to, to rethink, you know, what can be said uh, about this, the idea of influence. And, and I suppose so for both of these chapters, um, you know, how do you, how do you get to algorithmic competence, right? How do you kind of say, aha, <laughs> this yeah. is, this is, this is good. Yeah. It's a really um, great question. And I'm glad you sort of picked up on the, the parallels between the two chapters. Uh, and I think, yeah, even the, you know, the, the fifth chapter too, which is another case study also is, is wrestling with this question, which is a question I think our field or the, the field of cultural analytics has been dealing with is uh, given these new, you know, mean tools for measurement, uh, these new ways of kind of analyzing characteristics of literature at larger scales, you know, how does that, the knowledge that we're producing here, how does that fit within kind of received notions of, or received practices of interpretation? So I, just to kind of, characterize what what I was trying to do in, in each of these case studies was to think about 
like so the knowledge produced by the machine is obvious it's obviously you know tied to kind of the human interpretive decisions that go into a model but the way that that modeling is then carried out produces a results or um you know creates this knowledge that feels unfamiliar in way, in a ways it's it's uh, relies on you know algorithms it relies on a kind of a machine or algorithmic competence that is alien to the competence that we might um that we have uh you know as individual scholars who are trained in uh particular ways and who have the experience of reading particular things so um the question then was well given these received traditions and then given this this sort of very alien kind of output that we get from the machine how do we then try to align those uh and it, there's never a perfect alignment uh, but the point i wanted to make was that there's it's always a negotiation so the case has to be made that what those computational results are on the one hand actually seeing uh, what we want them to see in a set of texts, and then that whatever that whatever they're seeing, uh, assuming that it's valid to some degree, that that uh, is then generating uh, uh, insights that are um, that go beyond, or at least tell a different story than we've been able to tell through other uh, methods. And I really, I think, as you mentioned in chapter four, get at this uh, in a very deep way. Uh, and essentially what I do, and this is sort of, I think work that I've been doing along with Richard. So for a while now, back way back to our, our haiku piece on literary pattern recognition, which is to sort of see the computational approach as its own, uh, working through its own kind of system of logic, its own ontologies of what a text is and, and just being okay with that sort of saying, this is how it works. Uh, and then saying, okay, well, let's look at it alongside these other ways we have, whether uh, these ways we have of thinking about text, whether it's through close reading, whether whether it's through a kind of a historical analysis of how texts have been received and the stories that have been told about them. You're never going to get quite the same story, but through the, the basic argument there is that the that the machine what the machine, what that algorithmic competence delivers is a set of insights that can supplement or at least extend the stories we have um, told ourselves already about the I novel in the case of chapter three or in chapter four about the diffusion of stream of consciousness writing and narrative style into Japan. And so that's the, that's kind of the, the, the basis there for the way I set up those chapters and, yeah, the, I think the question of what is good enough, you know, that'll be up to readers <laughs> um, if I've convinced them or not. Uh, that's, uh, I, I don't know. Um, but I at least wanted to sort of make sure to say that this is, a, it is very much a conversation. Um, it's not always going to be the case that the computational methods will give us anything that we didn't already know or that's insightful. But part of the work that we do as scholars is to move kind of the debate forward. And uh, to the extent that these algorithmic competences help us do that, then why not, you know, embrace them? Yeah, very optimistic. I like it. Again. <laughs> <laughs> the eternal um, well, optimist, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and um, I think that it's just a nice opportunity to ask there as well, because chapter four really does um, kind of force you to look at, to use tools and look at two different languages to explore, you know, in theory, the same thing. Um, I'm, I, you know, I, I want to ask both about kind of how how this is kind of coming back for full circle to an attempt to kind of come back to the early definition, right? The early kind of problem um, of distant reading mm-hmm. uh, and and looking, you know, in the transnational context, but also just the kind of pr- on a practical level, um, whether that, you know, what are the kinds of challenges of doing that given, uh, you know, as has come up multiple times now, the kind of predominance of tools being designed to to work for English, right? So, what are the what is what makes right. it hard to to look across language? Yeah, um, yeah. There, I mean, there's all things that make that hard, and uh, some of it has to do with uh, right the asymmetries in tools that we've discussed. Some of it just has to do with the fact that you know, as um, you know, that languages operate uh, according to uh, different systems. And there are not always, you know, points of comparison that we can uh, identify, um, no matter how sort of abstract uh, we go. I think, you know, this is really a, a question I hope to, you know, continue to wrestle with in the future. In chapter four, so in thinking about stream of consciousness, there the idea was to build a model that was in some ways language agnostic, uh, which is to say that you, we were using abstractions of, you know, textual features that could be, uh, that had a kind of um, equivalent in, you know, whether you're looking at English or Japanese. So uh, in the, in one, like the, presence of neologisms, for example. Like, like that, that's a thing, obviously the process is gonna be different for each language, but that's something you could identify for each linguistic context. Um, but you're right, moving ahead, uh, there are always, there's always gonna be, you know, things that where you're just not gonna find that kind of equivalent. And so that's where you'll, you'll you know, inevitably have to sort of I guess we'll have to sort of retreat back into our <laughs> linguistic um, boxes, which often become, you know, national uh, national boxes, uh, and do that work um, on those languages in in that very specific way. But my my yeah, I mean, one desire and one of the things I, I really wanted this book to do was to, as you as you mentioned, bring the con- bring the conversation back to Moretti's initial kind of thrust uh, and the, the initial thrust behind distant reading, which was to do a more comparative history. And um, the, the kinds of comparative histories we can do with computational tools are going to be hampered, right, by this, those cases where we can't find equivalence or the cases where we have a technology to do one thing in English, but not in Japanese. Uh, yeah, so that's, you know, I think that's one of the really important tasks to the extent that uh, cultural analytics and that these methods are being taken up by uh, in English departments and within uh, sort of literary studies in the North American context to try, yeah, 
trying to to prevent a situation where we have you know, kind of this rich this wealthy this wealth of tools for one language but not others is going to sort of reinscribe certain uh uh hierarchies uh of knowledge uh and i think we have to try really hard um to do you know to do the best we can not to allow that to happen and this means um you know, pushing for, um, you know, more work on, at this kind of interest, this basic infrastructural level to think about the tools that we can extend to Japanese uh, or to other languages, the tools that have been developed that we can extend elsewhere. And then also to, to sort of really reckon with the limits uh, of um, which, which we, I think we already know sort of well from work and for qualitative work, which is the, the limits of comparison when we're thinking across um, two different linguistic contexts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you put in that call. Uh, and, I, and I would also say that it's important, as I'm, I'm sure you will have experienced in your work, to think not just about taking tools from English to other languages, but... Um, you know, uh, where there is innovative uh, tooling and infrastructure from other languages to bring that bring that to English, because we often do have this assumption, I think that, you know, it's it's the kind of the biggest and the best exists mm-hmm. for English. And, 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 and you know, I, unfortunately, 99% of the time, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> um, but I'm really interested in those times when that might not be true and making sure that we're, we're kind of making, you know, bringing light um, to those areas of, of, you know, maybe hidden GitHub repositories that, mm-hmm. that, um, that can, that can kind of help make that a two way street for, for the kinds of analysis that, that your, you and others are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just want to move on to the last chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I think this is a really rich and um, important chapter for a lot of reasons. Um, and so I'm, you know, I apologize to, to you and to listeners that we, we probably could have done a whole interview just on <laughs> chapter five. Uh, and um, we're going to, we're not, we're not going to speed through it, but we're not going to spend as much time on it. Um, so everyone go read it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I, so I just want to ask you, um, I, I guess first to, just to say chapter five is um, titled discourse and character, which I think is kind of hiding, hiding mm. um, its real uh, excitement. Uh, and, and so just, you know, generally the question they are asking is uh, what is the vocabulary of racializing discourse uh, in, in Japanese? And does it add up at scale to a consistent semantics of racial description and stereotyping? And so what I wanted to ask you is if you could, if you could kind of talk through how you designed an experiment, um, well, set series of mm-hmm. experiments yeah. to, to answer that question. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, yeah. So the, this chapter, it, uh, as that quote really highlights nicely, is, is an attempt to see if these uh, if computational tools might be useful for identifying a kind of patterns of, of racial or uh, ethnic representation, in particular, kind of stereotypical descriptions. Uh, 
And uh, in terms of the historical context, it was really, you know, using the the, the data that I had uh, was to try to th- think about how this works under conditions of empire. So um, the data set, the, the, the text that I have from Aozora all tend to fall, you know, within basically the range of 1910 to 1950 or so, uh, which is in fact the, you know, the sort of the height of Japanese empire. And so I thought it would be a really, you know, if possible, it would be really interesting to explore uh, that, um, what kinds of patterns of racial representation appear uh, across the life of, of that empire. So it, yeah, to speak to the design uh on the one hand, you know, my my interest and the interest of the book was in literature, so that was my initial focus. Was could could I uh, create a model uh, that would identify some of these patterns of of racial or uh, racializing language in literary texts? Uh, but I also knew that that um, whatever came from those models or whatever I was able to find would mean less without some kind of uh, comparison point. So to that uh, effect, uh, what I did was I um, not only used a corpus of literary text, but also a parallel corpus um, from roughly the same time span of essentially journalistic texts. So these are you know, articles in newspapers or articles in kind of general interest magazines. And set this up as, uh, okay, well, what patterns can we identify in literature and what patterns can we identify in this set of non-fictional texts? And through that kind of um, dual structure, how might that uh, help us interpret the significance of anything we find in the literary realm? Um, And so I proceed to do that with this uh, idea of creating, um, essentially uh, through word embeddings and a couple of other um, sort of basic statistical tools identify the types of words or the, the, the sort of the, the clusters of, uh, of semantically related terms that appear around racial and ethnic other, others, uh, including both the subjects of empire, so Korean, Chinese, uh, indigenous peoples, but then also the um, those who are on the you know, the, the dominant side of empire. So uh, Westerners or whites, and then also the Japanese themselves and, and tried to think about, okay, to what extent could we look for uh, those moments when um, certain racial and ethnic categories tend to attract certain sets of words more so than other groups. Uh, so whether that be uh, you know, Japanese versus Korean or uh, Japanese versus uh, white Westerners. Uh, and this was the sort of the, the impetus behind the models uh, that I developed. And what comes out of those are these sort of cement, what I call semantic grids. And through those, I try to look for both uh, common uh, shared tendencies across nonfiction and fiction, and then look for what uh, is different in fiction and um, how certain uh, the manifestations that we see there are certain sort of groupings of vocabulary with racial or ethnic categories, how those lead us back into the archive or back into the texts 
through which we can then understand kind of individual instantiations of stereotype or racial reference within the terms of this larger structure, which until now, and without the aid of these tools and archives, we've been able to imagine, but have never been able to sort of see in, in really any kind of empirical way. Yeah, I was, I'm really interested in the semantic grids uh, that you, that you, you use in, in the chapter. And I think they're, they're a kind of great example of a visualization that's both complex and simple. Um, And so I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, there's, there's the design of the experiment and there's Mm -hmm. the, the kind of, um, you know, exploration of the data, but in terms of shaping these, um, you know, shaping these figures for the publication itself, I wonder if you could say something about, about that, about that design choice. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, this is sort of speaks to my own kind of intellectual trajectory. Uh, I've had the, you know, the benefit of being able to you know, take a variety of courses in NLP and machine learning, you know, as I learn to, to do this stuff. Uh, but one course that I, I was able to sit in on here at Chicago was a data visualization course. And uh, both out of sort of um, personal interest, but also I think one of the things that was incre- has become increasingly clear to me is how much these visualizations uh facilitate the communication of these complex results. I think we all know this intuitively since at least over the last 18 months, we've been living with, you know, various pandemic uh, COVID dashboards and whatnot. Uh, I think, and even before that, you know, data journalism had had really sort of shown us the power of visualization, uh, data visualization for communicating ideas. And for me, it's this, you know, those semantic grids are an attempt to find a balance between uh, the raw output of the models, which is, you know, just a, a, a text document with uh, numbers and terms, which is going to be kind of impenetrable, and then a visualization that's going to communicate something of that complexity, um, but also be, uh, what's the word? I, I, I also want them to be inviting Right, so that uh, people look at them and can see some of the patterns that I see, but I don't try to explain everything in those visualizations because I can't. There just isn't space for it. But I want them to be kind of windows for others to say, "Oh, you know, here's a pattern I see in these visualizations." Uh, you know, as one would maybe looking at a map or something, and and then from there to be able to dive into the data that I've provided on the GitHub site to say, "Oh, what's happening?" in this semantic grid, in the space where, I don't know, like Chinese meets uh, terms related to clothing, right? So I've created, I've, I've provided, uh, you know, the actual code to then go and look through the corpus and find out where, the, what are the passages that lead to that result? Um, but yeah, so I, I think, you know, just in general, I, I really would want to emphasize for, you know, scholars in the field and in the future, that data visualization is is a critical kind of 
aspect of what we do that we can't it's not just uh we can't, can't just rely on the tools and and our you know our gifts at uh, elocution and and rhetoric the data visualization is 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 yet another kind of um key pillar in communicating the value of this work absolutely so I think we're nearing the end of our time. And I, I just want to ask if there's any final messages that you have about, about sort of what you hope, uh, especially um, maybe students, uh, people new to digital humanities, cultural analytics uh, might take away from the book um, and carry forward in, in their own work. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it depends on the audience. And I, I have tried to write it for multiple audiences uh, for those scholars in you know, the field of Japanese literature, literary studies, the book is really meant, uh, and the message I want the book to send is that this, you know, e even if you don't have um, an already kind of a, a nascent interest in computation or numbers, that the, the things that we can do with those and the, the fact that we, ha you know, live in a scholarly environment where we have access to these digital collections should uh, provoke you to at least think of what's possible and to sort of imagine that whatever arguments you make that may rely on keyword searches or existing archives uh, should have an awareness of what's possible with these tools, if only just to sort of uh, situate what one is doing. Um, and then for, you know, I think for those in DH more broadly uh, who work in literary studies or you know, computational literary studies. The goal is is to you know to for those who you know don't work on English language text to tell them that this is this kind of work is possible that you can write a book you can you can make a meaningful kind of historical argument about a literature other than English, and for those who work in English just to to say that um, your own um, you know, through through reading about uh, other literatures you know written about with these methods. Uh, you may sort of reflect on kind of the biases or the assumptions that are built into the work that you do in English, simply because you have those those tools uh, ready to hand, right? Uh, you often don't have to think through some of the very basic choices, interpretive choices that are made and that have, have to be made with other languages. So um, yeah, it really is a means to help folks in that area kind of reflect on the work that they do. Yeah, I, I think that the way that you approach numbers, um, as you say, with, with a sense of flexibility um, and uh, in terms of inviting people to think about a relationship with quantitative uh, analysis that isn't um, in, in, um, you know, in competition with the other mm -hmm. kinds of methods that we use is, is obviously really healthy. <laughs> and, um, and I do, I, and I'm also really excited to see a monograph come out uh, that isn't, um, you know, that it has a DH focus uh, and that is about a non-English language. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really important contribution um, to, to the field. And so thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. And I just wanted to know if you wanted to say a few words about what you've been working on since you finished the book. Yeah. Um, and likewise, it's been great talking with you, Katie, about the book. And I, I, I'm always interested to hear, you know, 
sort of responses from those who don't work on Japanese literature. Um, so it's very encouraging uh, what you say. Uh, yeah, looking ahead, I think, you know, some, as I've sort of alluded to, some of the work that I hope to do in the future is, is to really continue to build out uh, kind of the infrastructure. Uh, so one project uh, with David Bamman and a few others is to help extend his um, tool for uh, extracting character entities from text to extend that to the Japanese language uh, and Japanese literary texts. So I think that's going to be sort of exciting and open up a, a bunch of new doors um, and allow for you know the, com- the kinds of comparative work that we've discussed. And I think on the other hand, uh, another avenue that I'm exploring is to sort of move away from literary history and to think about literature in the current moment, uh, in particular kind of online forms of writing, um, whether that be fan fiction or sort of non-professional writing. There's a rich history of this um, actually in Japan, you know, that dates back to things like cell phone novels in the early aughts uh, where people were you know, writing literature uh, on their devices. And now we see that kind of have proliferated through uh, platforms like Wattpad and AO3. And uh, there's just like a whole, you know, millions of texts that are out there on the internet um, that we can't possibly read uh, and yet which we should probably try to understand uh, what's happening. So I'm hoping to kind of leverage some of these tools for work on that kind of, uh, that kind of fiction and just to think about sort of writing and platforms in our uh, digital age. Well, both of those projects sound fantastic and I'm looking forward to learning more about them in the future. So um, thank you very much for your, for your time today. Thank you for being on the, on the show. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure and um, we'll, we'll say good, goodbye and until next time. All right. Thanks so much, Katie. This has been great.